starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Have you ever wondered if it's okay to confront sin in another church member's life? Maybe you've been sinned against in an unthinkable way that has left you speechless. You couldn't believe it. Maybe somebody's confided in you and told you that they have decided to give into their favorite sin because God told them it was okay. What do you do? Do you turn the other cheek and ignore it to maintain unity? Do you not say anything and just love them, hoping that your love shows them something? If you go to them and you say something, are you judging them? Should you ask another person to join in should the pastors do something? What should be done with the person if they're unapologetic about their sin? Today we are seeing Jesus equipping his disciples to engage in a very painful task in the life of a church. And so it's, it's my desire as one of the pastors here to help equip you so that way you are able to engage with one another in what Jesus says, even though it may be a painful task in the life of this church. So what that means is equipping you to engage even in the painful tasks. That's my role right now today. So what we're seeing this morning is that God's sheep keep one another accountable by calling each other to repentance. God's sheep keep one another accountable by calling each other to repentance. And we'll see this unfold for us in Jesus' call to confront the offender. Then shows them that there are three calls to repentance. And then lastly, he shows us that this is not to be taken lightly, but with serious consideration. So let's look at the first part of verse 15. 
When one of the sheep in the flock sins against you, Jesus says, confront their sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. This is straightforward, isn't it? If you are sinned against, go and tell the one who has sinned against you their fault, their sin. But before we move forward, specifically with this whole passage, we need to understand that this passage is specifically speaking to the members of the local church. Because when we come to church discipline, when we think about church discipline, we need to think through, well, who are we confronting? Why are we confronting them? What's at stake? Do people here confront those at another church? Am I responsible? Is Todd responsible for those at another church? Or are you as the members responsible for other people at other church, other churches? So how can I say that this passage is speaking to the members of the local church? Well, let's look at the context, the fuller context of what's going on here. In context, Jesus, he is speaking about the flock. Verses 10 through 14, we saw this right up above what we're looking at today, is talking about what could happen if a sheep is sinned against. The sheep in that flock could go astray. So let's just think about that a little bit more for us. Do you notice that in verses 10 through 14, Jesus says that there are 100 sheep? There being 100 sheep means that there's not 1 million sheep. The shepherd in that case leads and has authority over 100 sheep. Not all the sheep in the world. Jesus, he's the good shepherd who shepherds all Christians across the world. But what Jesus does is Jesus, he establishes under shepherds to watch over his sheep until he returns. So what this looks like for us here is that Todd and I are the under-shepherds of this flock. Him and I, we work together side by side for the care of your souls. And what God will do is He will judge us for how we teach and care for your souls. And so, like, I, I might have the title lead pastor, but our authority to shepherd remains the same. The accountability that we will receive from God remains the same. So we pastor this flock. What does that specifically look like? Well, we know that Peter, he picks up on this. Peter picks up on this imagery of a pastor being a shepherd when in 1 Peter 5, 2-3, Peter says, shepherd the, flock that God shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have for you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This then begs the question, doesn't it? Who are the sheep of the flock? 
Who are the sheep that Todd and I watch over? Are we responsible over sheep that are in another flock at a different church? Will we have to give an account for their souls to God one day? Will those sheep have to give an account to God for how they submitted to us here at this local church? Are we responsible for just any sheep that wanders into this local church at any given moment? What we might say is, are we responsible for any Christian that wanders into our local church? Can a sheep in Wisconsin have a shepherd in South Carolina? This is why we have church membership is to is to clearly help us as the shepherds know who the sheep are and it helps the sheep know who they're submitting to we, we find help of who the sheep are in the local church in hebrews thirteen seventeen. obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the sheep who are under our care are those who have submitted to the local church's leadership. What this does is clearly define the roles. This helps the shepherds know who's in the flock and who they are to give an account for. So practically what this looks like is submitting to the church leaders through church membership so that we as the shepherds, the pastors, can clearly know who the sheep are that we need to take care of and who we specifically will give an account for. Now, this isn't just a shepherd sheep level, uh, uh, on a shepherd sheep level. I'm laying the foundation for this because it's crucial that the sheep know who the sheep in the flock are. It's crucial for you as the members to know that when we are pursuing church discipline, who church discipline is for and who it is not for in this local church. It's important that the members of the local church know who the members in the local church are and what they are called to do. Why? This is the question that should come up. Why? So that when there is a member who is living in unapologetic sin, they can go and confront the offender. And this confrontation, this confrontation of confronting the offender, the one who is in sin, happens for three reasons. It happens for the heart of the offender. It happens for the purity of the local church. And ultimately, it happens with the hope of restoration or reconciliation for the person back to the gospel. And we see this confrontation happen in the life of David. 
when David sleeps with Bathsheba and then has her husband killed, what does Nathan do? Nathan goes and confronts David's sin. He, he does it for the sake of David's heart so that way David doesn't continue to live in this sin thinking that it's okay to act this way. He does it for the purity of Israel. And he does it for the restoration of David back to God. Church, we must take the call serious. We must take this call serious for the sake of one another and our church. This is a call to engage with Christians who are living in sin or has sinned against you. You must go and call her back to her first love. You must go and call him to turn from his sin and to trust in Jesus. Now I understand most of us do not like confrontation. We would rather fear people or please people. We want to avoid it. But to love our brother, to love our sister, is to call them to repent of their sin and not continue to unapologetically live in their sin. It's a call to call them right away to repentance. This is where I've made, a mis- where I've made mistakes before. In my heart, I've thought if I give them three strikes, then I'll confront them, not realizing the damage it's doing to their heart, but realizing that my own sin is wanting to be passive and ultimately build up a case. We confront the sin right away. We do not wait. We pursue peace in this body even when it makes us uncomfortable. We must confront the offender, the unapologetic sinner out of love with childlike humility and meekness. We have to do it. This is not a suggestion that Jesus is giving. This uncomfortable and painful task needs to happen in the life of any healthy local church. And so this is why Jesus, he equips his disciples with a process to engage with one another. And there are three phases in this process. There are three calls to repent. We read, between you and him alone. So go and tell him his fault. And first, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So look, the the first way we call the offender to repent is privately. The first way we go to this unapologetic sinner is to go to them privately and tell them their fault. We don't put them on blast. We go to them in a one-on-one setting. This isn't a call or a text message or an email. This is a face-to-face person interaction. We go to them. We, we pull them aside. 
We ask for just a moment of time, of their time. We do not pursue this call to repentance to embarrass or belittle the brother or sister. We don't do this to embarrass them because we don't want to give the enemy any more of a foothold in their lives. We do this out of gentleness and humility so not to cause condemnation where the enemy then comes into them and causes them to double down on their sin. But instead, we go to them privately with childlike humility, with honesty, with affection. And you point out the way they have sinned. And if they ask for forgiveness, then we rejoice because we have gained our brother or sister. However, we see in this passage that there are cases where the unapologetic sinner doubles down. And so Jesus then tells the second way that you are to engage with a person who doubles down when you confront them privately. We take one or two others with us. Now these aren't others who have also seen this sin or heard this sin. These are mediators. These are people who listen into the problem. The one or two mediators that are brought with the person who is unapologetically sinning and the one who is calling them to repentance are there to be active listeners and slow speakers to discern with wisdom and observe the situation to help clear up any miscommunication. So when you and the one or two meet with the offender, they are to listen to the offender, call the unapologetic sinner to repentance. They are there to discern the gravity of the sin. And if the sin is as serious as what it is, then the one or two should also plead and call the one who is in sin to repentance. But we see that there are cases where the unapologetic sinner doubles down again. And this is the saddest case. If the unapologetic sinner presses on in their sin, Jesus tells the disciples, tell the church, Tell the church so that they may discern the sin and vote on if they need to start all over with that person. All over meaning if they need to start over by sharing the gospel with them again. Treating them as if they are an unbeliever. Let me illustrate what's going on with this story. I once heard a pastor explain what this looked like for him. He tells the story how a very close friend of his told him after their weekly jog that he was 
leaving his wife for another woman. Pastor says this came out of left field and he was shocked and he pleaded with his friend. The man said that he felt confident in his choice because God told him it was okay. The pastor said it was not God who was speaking to him because God's word says he shouldn't do that and God would not contradict himself. Two weeks went by, and the pastor then took two others with him. Still, this man was unapologetically living in his sin, saying that he was going to stay with his choice to leave his wife and pursue this other woman. A month went by, and then the pastors went before the church and explained to the church what had gone on with as much detail as they could possibly give. They gave it a month so that the members of the church could pray for this man and reach out to this man and plead with him to repent. He didn't repent, and so they voted to remove him from membership. When it gets this far and the church decides that church discipline must happen to an individual, what the church is collectively saying is their profession of faith is not matching up with what they are living. We do not have confidence that they were ever born again. And so therefore, we will not admit them to the Lord's Supper. We will treat them as if they are a Gentile or tax collector and start all over with sharing the gospel to them again. Jesus, he dies for sinners. And you and I, we are the worst of sinners. And he sacrificed himself for us. And there are no words to describe how incredible that is. The fact that you and I were destined for God's judgment and wrath, but spared because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The truth and the reality that when we believe in Jesus and what he has accomplished, Jesus takes our sin all of our guiltiness, all of our unrighteousness, and he gives us all of his righteousness so that way we can have peace and forgiveness with God. This is what happens. This is the magnificent reality of Jesus' life and what he has accomplished and what he came to do. And so just a quick question. I just am wondering, are you here today? Have you received that forgiveness and righteousness? Have you received that forgiveness? Are you his child? I say this 
Because as painful as this task in the life of the church is for the members of the local church, this is what makes church discipline essential. This is what makes church discipline essential. This is what makes doing church discipline healthy in a local church. Is because the local church is to be made up of professing believers who have been bought back by the blood of Jesus. And so as I said earlier, we do church discipline for three reasons. The first reason is for the heart of the one who is in unapologetic sin. The second is for the purity and the safety of the flock of the local church. And the third reason is ultimately for gospel restoration, gospel reconciliation. One of the absolute worst things that a Christian and a church could do is give a person who is unapologetically living in sin a false sense of assurance of their salvation. One of the worst things that a church or a Christian could do is give the false assurance of another person who is unapologetically living in sin standing with God. Because it brings confusion to the church and ultimately it belittles God's call and His power to save sinners and to be holy as He is holy. We confront and engage in church discipline so that way it wakes the brother or sister up. The next thing along with that is to let others in the church know that the unapologetic sinner is living a lie. The church is to let others in the church know that this unapologetic sinner is chasing evil. It's to not let other Christians or believers in the church believe that this unapologetic sinner is okay with God. Why? Because their sin could sow seeds of confusion and division both in the church and outside the church. We see Paul engaging in this important matter in 1 Corinthians 5. There was a a young man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the church was saying, yes, look at us, we're culturally relevant. More people are going to come to our church because we're accepting of this sin. And Paul's wisdom in his teaching is saying, no. For the, sake of this, for the sake of this person's heart, for the purity of the church, you must excommunicate, you must enact church discipline on this person so that way Satan may sift him 
And so that way, the church, which is called to holiness, does not start believing that it should live in sin. But the third reason that we saw, or that I spoke of, is for gospel reconciliation, gospel restoration. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to do this to this man for the hopes that he comes back. This is why church discipline happens. Oh, I hope that you're paying attention this morning. I hope that the Spirit is allowing you to understand and see this and that, he, and that, this, that your mind isn't being drawn to frivolous things this morning. Church discipline displays the gospel. It points to gospel re- reconciliation. How, do, how could I possibly say this? Well, I could possibly say this and, and believe this, this reality because this is what we see in the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning of Genesis, when Adam and Eve, they committed a sin, what happens? God, he excommunicates them from Eden. He has to drive them out. He has to give them over to their sin. But he does not leave them without hope, does he? He gives them gospel hope. He tells them that there would be an offspring that would make all things right. Church discipline and why we do this is a gospel issue. It displays the gospel to the world. It's in hopes that that one who is living in unapologetic sin is restored back to the Savior. This is why we do church discipline. It's because church discipline reminds us and shows us of our state that we used to live in, that we lived in unapologetic sin that we chased after our favorite sins, that we lived for our favorite sins, and yet Christ, He came to confront our sin, to convict us of our sin, to plead with us to come into His flock. If you do not confront the sinner who is in unapologetic sin, you must examine your own heart on if the Spirit has actually pierced you. Because this is a gospel issue. We long and hope at the end of the day that the one who is being sent out experiences gospel reconciliation to Jesus. This is why there is serious consideration behind church discipline and that it's not taken lightly. Church discipline is not to be done flippantly cruelly, heartlessly. We see this as Jesus, He tells the disciples, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is overwhelming. I can't imagine how overwhelmed the disciples must have felt hearing this. That people would have to be disciplined. But Jesus leaves them with hope. He he leaves them showing them how good and kind God is for having to engage in this 
hard process of church discipline. Let's first notice how he restates to the disciples what he told Peter when he promised him to the keys of the kingdom. So Peter isn't just promised the keys to the kingdom like those who are Catholic believe. The whole disciple, the whole church has these keys as Jesus restates the same thing that he says to Peter back in verse, or chapter 16. Verse 18, Jesus is telling them that when they go through the appropriate steps with a pure, kind, and loving heart to decide on church discipline matters, he is saying that what the church's decision is, is final. And heaven agrees. This is why church discipline isn't to be done flippantly, but with serious consideration. What you bind up on earth shall be bound up in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If the ruling of the members and the concise or, or, or the consensus is to treat them like an unbeliever, and they've gone through the appropriate steps, then what Jesus is saying, what is done, is done. Verses 19 through 20, because this is serious, because this is hard, verses 19 and 20 then show us two sweet promises. Two promises of prayer. Two promises of prayer that normally and unfortunately get taken out of context. The first promise is that when you are engaging in the process of discipline and praying in agreement with others, we can be confident that the Father will accomplish our prayer. We can have confidence of that. The second is the comfort of Jesus through this painstaking process of church discipline. The process of church discipline shouldn't make a church happy. It should grieve people in the church. And Jesus knows this. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples this promise that when they are going through this process where two or three are gathered, he will be there with them. He will be there to guide them, to comfort them. So what can we learn from this? What we can learn through this process of church discipline is that God is with his church in a unique and close way when they are going through this painful process of church discipline. God will not abandon his people in their hour of need. God will not abandon his people as they grieve the consequences of an unapologetic sinner. Do we think that little of God? Brothers and sisters, 
we shouldn't go looking for people to put on church discipline, but we should not be afraid of it either. Done in the right way, it is a sign of a healthy church and displays the gospel. Done the right way, we understand the grand theme of church discipline. The great point and reality of church discipline. The goal of church discipline. The hope of church discipline. That is gospel reconciliation. Church discipline is done with the high hopes that the one who is being sent out of the church or out of the flock that they see their sin. They repent of their sin. They confess Jesus as Lord. Jesus as their Savior. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as a church to display the Gospels in all areas of our life? Through the good things that you call us to and the hard things that you call us to. Help us to display the great Gospel in all areas of our life. Because whom, O oh God, is like you? There is none. Amen.